If you have a Bible, would you open up with me to the Gospel of John? The Gospel of John chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today. If you're, if you're new or you're visiting with us, uh, welcome. It's, it's good to see you. It's good to have you here with us. We're uh, actually starting a new series today, and you picked a good Sunday to come and check us out because over the next uh, several weeks, we're going to do something we like to do every couple years here at Living Hope, and that is uh, revisit our, our core values, the things that we, we uphold, the things that we aspire to do and to be as a, as a local church. Um, and the ways that we sort of operate here. We have a, our, our membership class coming up in about a month, and so sometimes uh, this is a good opportunity for us to invite folks to that, to say, hey, if, if you haven't united your life to, to a local church or if you haven't connected with a local church, perhaps we can be that church. But in order to invite you into that, we want to do our best to let you know who we are and, and, and what we hope to see God do in our midst and uh, the values and the aspirations and ambitions that we have as this particular expression uh, of, of a local church. And so today we start the series we've titled Core, where we're just going to walk each week through the, the values that we, we talk about the most, the things that we um, try to keep in front of us as, as goals or orientations for ministry here at Living Hope. And so today we start that uh, by talking about discipleship. If you've been at Living Hope any amount of time, hopefully you've heard us talk about discipleship and uh, why it is important to us. But today I want to uh, do a little bit of a deep dive on that and kind of unpack all that we can from this one episode here in John's Gospel, in John chapter 1. You know, often when we talk about discipleship, we, we take you to passages of Scripture like the end of Matthew's Gospel, where there Jesus commissions his disciples. We often call it the Great Commission. He sends them out to go and make more disciples. Uh, we go to places like Luke chapter 24, where Jesus there calls his disciples to himself and uh, reminds them of the good news of the gospel in all of Scripture, and then again sends them to go and proclaim his resurrection. Even places like the end of Mark's gospel or John's gospel. But if we're not careful, if we take our cues simply from the end of the Gospels, talking about discipleship, then we may open ourselves up to one of the uh, errors that, I common, uh, that can be kind of common for, for, for preachers and teachers like me. And that is to, to talk about discipleship without showing how Jesus started this whole process, without going back and looking at the, the beginning stages of his ministry and the way that he formed his disciples to send them out into the world. And so we see that here at the, in the opening passage of John's gospel. John opens up by giving us this robust explanation of who Jesus is, that uh, he is the word made flesh. He is God in, in human form and that God had brought uh, men and women to, 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 to new life, to new birth, being brought to life by God himself. And, and Jesus is the king over their lives. And John the Baptist had gone, gone before Jesus prophesying, pointing towards him, preparing people to trust him, know him, and repent of their sin. And then Jesus begins calling disciples to himself here at the end of chapter 1. And we get, I think, a, an insight into what we mean when we talk about discipleship. Look with me, if you will, in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. The next day, again, John, that is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus. 
Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is the word of the Lord. I got to spend about the last week or so uh, back in Oklahoma, my hometown, and even last Sunday, I I got to attend attend the church where I was uh, first baptized, where I first started following Jesus, and uh, it was kind of, it was just interesting. I went to a family reunion the day before, and I don't know if if you've ever moved away from a hometown or moved away from kind of your people only to to reconnect with them later. It's always super insightful to me, and I I love uh, asking questions as I get older and some of my relatives get older. I kind of quiz them about things that I I may not have known to ask about when I was a kid, like, why did we do this? Or why was my family this way? And perhaps they can give me some insight and some understanding. Um, but, but being at the church where I was baptized, I had this kind of epiphany sitting there like, this is, it was just a really cool experience. I, I became a, a believer in Jesus, best I can tell, on August 3rd, 1996. And so I was in that church almost, you know, 20 some odd years uh, to the date later. And I got to thinking about, yeah, it was, it was really cool. I, I trusted Christ by faith, I repented of sin, I, I was baptized, all those things. But as I, as I started looking around the room, especially at some of the older folks that are still there, I began to realize, like, much of my journey of faith, much of my faith in, in Jesus and my hope in Him, much of who I am today is largely the result of a lot of relationships. In fact, I would probably contend my faith in the relationships of the people that I knew in that first church were kind of inseparable. There was a youth pastor who had invested in me, who had kind of sought me out and began telling me the good news of the gospel and modeling for me all the fruits of the Spirit and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. He was sort of an embodiment of that to me. My uh, my mentor, the pastor of that church, the guy that actually baptized me, he invited me into his life. He allowed me to not just see him preach and teach the scriptures, but help me see and understand how he led his deacons meetings and even how he parented his kids and loved his wife so well. And all those experiences for me were very formative. In fact, part of the reason I am who I am today is, I would say, almost entirely the result of those sorts of relationships. Now, why do I tell you all that? Uh, Because today, when we begin talking about discipleship, and when we begin talking about the the purpose of the local church and why we do what we do here at Living Hope, I want to kind of set it all up by just simply saying that at the heart of following Jesus, at the heart of being the people of God, is is this vision of of a a structured relationship whereby we, we know others and are known by others, we are in a community together where we share the hope of the gospel with one another, where we pray with one another, where we practice all the one another's of the New Testament. And I believe that formative experience of relationships 
is what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about discipleship. In fact, I kind of wrote down a definition for you this morning because I want to be as abundantly clear as I possibly can about what I'm talking about when I say this is a core value of our church, to to make and mature disciples of Jesus. Discipleship is the relational connection between you and God and others through which God grows us and matures us in the faith. Discipleship is the relational connection between you, God, and others that is essential for you to grow and mature in your faith in Jesus. In other words, any vision of Christianity, any any idea or ambition of following Jesus that you believe happens in isolation, that you you believe happens um, away from other people, that 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 may have its there may be moments of that. Solitude's a good thing. Being quiet and still before the Lord, meditating is a good thing. But the way that Jesus makes and matures disciples, the way that he grows us in faith, the way that he shapes us into his image and likeness, the way that he forms us and and enables us to be the people he's called us to be, that's always in the context of relationship. And at the very forefront of Jesus's ministry, the very beginning of, of what he's seeking to accomplish before his death and his resurrection, he begins by inviting men into relationship with him. Where they don't just hear him teach, but they see him live. Where they don't just hear the words that he, he speaks about God, but they, 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 they see and, and observe how he models that in his life. And so I want to give you this morning, I think, three quick features of discipleship, some of which maybe are overlooked or not talked about enough in our day and age. Three, three features that I think we want to um, take explicitly from the scriptures and apply to the way that we do church And not only the way we do church, the way we do community, and the way that we're involved and invested in each other's lives as well. The first one I want you to see is that discipleship discipleship is always started or initiated by an invitation, by an invitation. Discipleship is, in fact, marked in the life of Jesus by, by a particular invitation that he offers up. It's stated twice here in these few short verses that we read, uh, and, and it takes two different forms. The first one that we see is that he says, come and see. Whenever these first disciples are summoned to him, he, he says to them, they, they, they say, where are you saying? And he just says, hey, come, come and see. Come, come and look into this for yourself. And then whenever Nathaniel responds, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's met with the same invitation. Well, come and see. And Jesus, when he looks upon Peter, extends an invitation as well. Peter, you shall follow me. Come, come after me. Walk behind me. Learn from me. Be, be shaped and formed by me. Discipleship is always about an invitation. Now, that, that invitation, I think, has some, uh, some interesting tidbits uh, kind of loaded into it. If you, if you go back and look with me in verse 35, we see that, that, that John the Baptist was preaching about Jesus, and he points to Jesus. He has his own disciples, and he says, here's the Lamb of God. Here's the one that, that the Old Testament was prophesying about. Here's the one that we were being prepared for. This is the Messiah. This is the Lamb who's coming to take away the sins of the world. By his death and his resurrection, we can, we can turn to, to, to him and be found in him, be forgiven of sin and, and grow in him. And it says in verse 37, the two disciples that heard him say this, they followed Jesus. But Jesus turned and saw them following. And he said to them, and this is an important question, what are you seeking? No, why, why would he ask that question? Why would he maybe confront them in their pursuit of him? Why would the invitation that he extends to them to come and see who he is need to first be, be checked by, by this particular question? 
It's because Jesus, in order to make and mature disciples of, of, of his own, in order to call us to be the people that he's called us to be, he's always going to first address our desires. The invitation that we have as his followers is, is an open invitation. Anyone can get in on this. Come and see who Jesus is. Come and know him and be found in him and hear his words and be shaped by his teaching. But rest assured, if you're going to follow him, he's eventually going to call into question your desires. What are you seeking? What are you after? What do you, what do you long for? What are your ambitions? What are your hopes? What are your dreams? It, Jesus, in other words, isn't isn't content to just have a relationship with us at face value. He wants to get down to the heart of the matter. He wants to go below the line. He wants us to pull out up to the surface that which we really want. We see this in the, in the Gospels over and over again. Jesus is always summoning people to investigate what's happening in the heart. It's why we did a series this summer called Guard Your Heart, because Jesus isn't content just to have moral conformity. He wants people whose hearts are set on him. It's why he would tell the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, look, the reason that your behavior is not what I'm after. You're, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're like a, a, a filthy cup. Like the outside of the cup is shiny, but on the inside, you're, you're rotting and you're decaying. The heart's the issue. He would tell his disciples later, look, a bad tree is not going to bear good fruit, and a good tree is not going to bear bad fruit. What's in the heart's going to eventually come out. Tells his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount that whenever they sit under his teaching and under his authority, look, your heart, it's going to lead you in one direction or the other. You can't worship both God and money. Greed will consume you. So Jesus is always addressing in the lives of his followers and his disciples some variation of this question. What is it you're seeking? What do you want? If we had time this morning, we would look at all these episodes in the Gospels where it records for us that someone turned from the life they were living and began to follow Jesus. And almost inevitably, we would see a constant theme emerge. People come to Jesus because they want to be healed. People come to Jesus because they're tormented by demons. People come to Jesus because their life is a wreck. Sometimes they're not even coming to Jesus. Jesus goes to them. He goes and seeks them out, like the woman at the well and various others. Zacchaeus, he, he goes and, 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 and searches for them, and they think that they're searching for him. But always what happens whenever he has a confrontation with them, yes, they're invited in, but eventually he's going to let them know, you can get these things from me. I will heal you. I will restore you. But I want everything. I, I, he's, not, he's not satisfied with a superficial relationship. He's after their hearts. He's after their souls. Now, the reason that's important for us to consider this morning is because as a church, we want to be the sort of church like Jesus here who, who isn't content to just draw a crowd. When these men begin to follow him, it's like, hey, what are you, what are you here for? I mean, it's great. The room's full. That's awesome. We love seeing people show up on Sunday. But really, let's get down to the brass tacks. What, what's, what's our heart longing for this morning? What are, what are we really yearning for and desiring? The way we do church then is we're not trying to get you to just pray a prayer. We don't want you to just feel less guilt so that you get to go to heaven when you die and you can move on with your life and have none of your ambitions or your goals supplanted or redirected by the person of Jesus. That's not what we're after. Because Jesus asks you today, what are you seeking? What do you want? What are you after? What do you long for or desire? Whatever that is, whatever's sitting in that seat at the throne of your heart, that's the thing Jesus wants to press on. Because to be a disciple is to relinquish that, to turn from that, to give him everything. And so as a church, we're never going to be content to draw a crowd or to have an event. We want to be a church that makes disciples. We want to invite people to come and die, to lay down their lives for the sake of King Jesus. Our, 
Our aspirations as the people of God cannot remain merely earthly. We can't be content with just material, social, or political power. We're people who've been captivated by the person of Jesus, who, whom he has taken ownership of. We belong to him. He belongs to us. Discipleship is always an invitation, but it's an invitation to address your desires. Secondly, it's an invitation to, uh, to, to examine your questions. And Jesus invites our questions. That's the good news of what we're seeing here. He turns to these disciples and he says, look, what are you seeking? And they say, hey, man, we just want to see where you're staying. He's like, okay, come. You can come see where I'm staying. Son of man has no place to lay his head. You're ultimately going to be disappointed, I think, with Jesus' domicile. But come on, fellas. You can get in on this. It's the same thing that happens when Nathaniel says, hey, can anything good come out of Nazareth? All right, come and see. You have questions this morning? I have questions this morning. I've been following Jesus for almost 30 years, but I still got questions. And Jesus isn't threatened by those. In fact, he says, walk along. Let's, let's explore this together. Come and see what I've got going on. Some of, your, some of your questions that you have, in fact, may only be answered in faith. In other words, sometimes you have to take a step of faith or a step of obedience. Only then can that, can that question actually make sense or be explored. But Jesus invites those questions. We, if we had time this morning, we would look just two chapters later in chapter 3 in the famous interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a kind of a high roller. He's an important character in the, in, the, in the ancient world. And he comes to Jesus at, at night, mostly, we would guess or assume, because he's got some street cred built up. And if he's seen with Jesus, it could kind of you know, hurt his rep. And so he goes to Jesus at night, and Jesus begins explaining to him how, how it is that he can become a follower as well. And Jesus says, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, wait, man, that doesn't make any sense. How can I reenter my mother's womb? So he has a question, and Jesus is like, essentially, hey, man, I came to seek and save that which is lost. The, 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 the Jesus was given, the, the Son of God was given so that we could trust in him, so we wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. God sent me, Jesus says, not to condemn the world, but that through me the world might be saved. In other words, Nicodemus, the only way you're going to get an answer to that question is faith and trust. It's only whenever you bring that question in all your honesty and say, I don't really know how to resolve this, but I'm going to trust in you and see if you can work this out somewhere down the road. Jesus always invites our questions, but Jesus does summon all of us to follow him. That's what the invitation is. Verse 42, and I love the way that it says this, that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, brought Simon Peter to Jesus. He's like, hey man, you probably got questions. Let's go over here together. This is the essence of what discipleship is. I have a relationship with you, and I have a relationship with Jesus, and I'm going to try to connect you and Jesus. And so I'm going to seek you out because God is seeking you. I'm going to connect you with Jesus. And Jesus looks at Simon Peter and says, follow me. These disciples begin to follow him. They begin to entrust their lives to him. They're working out their questions and having their desires reformatted as they follow him. For them, Jesus becomes their center of gravity. He becomes the, 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 the focal point by which their life will spin, by which their life will operate. He becomes the point, their orientation. That's what it means to be a disciple. Look, you can, you can sit this morning and kind of passively investigate the person of Jesus, and I don't think that that offends God in any way. But there will come a point where you have to make a decision. And it's not just this, a decision to pray a prayer because you fear the threat of eternal punishment. It's not just a decision that says, I want to you know, let a little bit of my guilt go and maybe have some of the mess of my life restored. Jesus is happy to do all those things. But... Trusting in him, believing in him means following him. And that means being in relationship with others whereby God can shape us and form us. Make no mistake, the invitation for a disciple 
is to follow Jesus. But, but that involves the second thing that I want to point out this morning. It involves proximity. Discipleship always involves or addresses our proximity. What do I mean by that? Well, we see that with these disciples, this reoccurring theme, when Jesus says, come and see, he says in verse 39, uh, again, um, uh, Andrew says, come and see to Nathaniel, come and check this out for yourself. What he's inviting them into is to observe him. To, to, discipleship is always something that is observable. It's, in other words, the teaching of Jesus, it takes place in the context of his life and his actions. He models what he preaches. So being close to him means the, the stuff that he teaches, the truth of God's word, comes to life when you see him live it out. And for us, one of the reasons that we're sticklers in, in, on this point of being in community and being in a community group at Living Hope is because we fundamentally believe, we fundamentally believe that it's, there's a level of impossibility to following Jesus if you're not connected to community. You've got to be able to see it. You've got to be able to observe it in someone else's life. That's so why I opened up with the story of going back to my hometown. I, I looked around the room in the church where I was a part of, and I could look at various people now and be like, yeah, at some point, that man over there, he lent me his car because my, my car was broke down and I didn't have a way to get to, to work or to school. And he did that because he's a believer in Jesus, and that's what generosity looks like. So it wasn't just that I heard sermons on generosity. I had people who were generous to me. That when I went, left to go to college, that, that church took up an offering one Sunday night to help pay for my first semester of college. I, I, yes, I'd been taught about tithing, and yes, I'd been taught about generosity, but I got to see it and receive it and live into it. Because discipleship is observable. Followers of Jesus model for other followers what it looks like to walk out obedience, to, to not just say these things and teach these things, as good as that may be, but to live in a way that shows forth these things so that someone can look at it and say, I guess that's what faith looks like, and, and I want in on that. I, I want to model that and exemplify that in my heart and my life for others to see as well. In other words, we have to be in relationship with one another for these truths to be modeled. Just listening at a distance will, will only get you so far. I love that we have our services you know, broadcast online. I love that, that folks who may be disconnected on any given Sunday can kind of check in and keep up with what's going on in community. But if that is the sole diet of what it means to be a part of this particular church. At the very forefront of what we're trying to accomplish, you're going to miss the most important thing, being in relationship with others so that God can use those relationships via discipleship to shape and form your heart and your life. So you can observe when others, when others grieve, when others are dealing with aging parents, when they're dealing with wayward kids, when, when their marriage is maybe in a tough spot, whenever they're wrestling with you know, whatever's going on in the world at the moment, you can see what it looks like to exercise faith and trust in the person of Jesus. Whenever you go through those things as well, you've had a model to point back to, to say that's what it looks like to, to follow Jesus despite suffering, to follow Jesus despite fear, to follow Jesus despite frustrations. You have a model, and that's because discipleship is always observable. Secondly, we need proximity because discipleship requires vulnerability. It, it's easy to, to pontificate and talk about the things of discipleship at a, at a distance. It's something altogether different whenever Jesus says to us, come into my house, <laughs> come into my life. When he tells the, these disciples, come and check me out and look into me, investigate me. It's the same thing that we see that there's something 
vulnerable about, uh, about Nathaniel saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, he's just being honest right there. He's saying, look, I, maybe, I, maybe this guy is the Messiah, but where's he from? And Jesus is like, okay, you want to challenge my upbringing? That's cool. Come and find out. Come and check into it for yourself. Vulnerability is this place of being able to be honest about the questions that you have, about having your heart exposed, about having a culture where it's safe to say, I I haven't figured this out yet, and I don't really know what it looks like for me to take the next step, and I need help. And that's part of what we want to be as a church, because I believe disciples grow in a place where where there's honesty and safety. We're working simultaneously, where we have Jesus and safety and time. We have Jesus at the forefront of all that we do, and his grace and his mercy and his love. He desires to shape us and form us. Because of that, we're all sinners. It's got to be a safe place because we're all kind of on this journey together, wrestling with whatever the flesh of the world's throwing at us at any given moment. And we need time for the truth of the Holy Spirit and the, the relationships that we find ourselves to be a part of to shape us in a particular direction. So Jesus tells Nathaniel, okay, yeah, you think I'm a you know, backwater hillbilly? Come and see. Come and look in on it. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your vulnerability. It's only in those t- types of places where you can interact with a real Jesus in a real way and have your heart and life changed. In other words, I want us to be a gospel culture here. We talk about this in our membership class. A place where the gospel is not just something we preach, but, but we live in such a way that we really show that it's true. That, that were it not for the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, I am without hope. There aren't enough new habits for me to pick up, new leaves for me to, to turn over. There's not enough willpower within me to make me who God has called me to be. I'm utterly and desperately dependent upon the person of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to be who he's called me to be. And so in relationship, if that's true, if I really do believe that, that we're saved by sheer grace, not by work so that no one can boast, then this should be one of the freest places for people to be human beings. Where always needing to one-up one another, to to critique one another, to analyze one another, to evaluate one another. Those one-anothers are nowhere to be found in the New Testament. Have patience with one another. That is, tolerate one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul literally says that. Because you revere Jesus, you're going to have to put up with some people's baggage and issues. Because that's what it means to follow him. And it's somehow in putting up with it. It's not sweeping sin under the rug. But in being near someone who's not yet perfected by the Holy Spirit, God's going to use your love, your mercy, your kindness, your gentleness to shape and form them into the image and likeness of Jesus. That's the way God designed this thing to work. There's no vulnerability. There's no honesty. We're not walking in the light together. First John, when John says, look, if anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar. If anyone continues in sin, he's a liar. But walk in the light. Is Jesus in the light? Because then the blood of Jesus covers our sins and we have fellowship with one another. Walking in the light's not perfection, it's honesty. And in honesty and vulnerability, disciples are made. Discipleship, though, always results in movement. I know this sounds maybe um, ridiculous to have to say it, but follow me means you go somewhere. It means movement. It means mailing it in and being content with the status quo in your spiritual life is not what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus requires movement. Discipleship is a dynamic relationship between us and Jesus. It it doesn't mean that there won't be seasons of stagnation or seasons of, uh, of stalled growth, but it does mean we will never be content with apathy. 
It means as followers of Jesus, we will wage war against spiritual apathy. We will go, we, we, we will go to the altar with our disinterest and ask God to change our hearts and to motivate us once again to continue following. Jesus is on the move. He's going places. And the places he wants to take you requires deep abiding change in your heart. And so anyone who's seeking to follow him will always be, be repenting of sin, will always be seeing areas of their life that need to be formed and reshaped by him. They'll always have their, their ideologies challenged. Their, their values will always be coming under scrutiny. Our ambitions will always be being checked. Why? Because we, we, by getting in on the gospel, by trusting in Jesus, we're admitting we're unable to save ourselves. We are fundamentally unable to be our own Lord and Savior. And so by that admission and by that confession, then if we're going to follow Jesus, we should be continuously coming back to repentance, continuously coming back to faith, continuously having our behavior brought under the microscope of the mercy of Jesus so that we can change, so that he can transform us. Discipleship always results in movement, and that movement is towards Jesus, not away from him. And I think we would, we would be remiss, though, if we didn't bring up the last point that I think that this, this shows us about what it looks like to, to be a disciple of Jesus. It means to live a life of possibility, to live a life of possibility. I, I love this because Nathaniel says to, to, back to Andrew, he says, man, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. There's no way the Messiah showed up there. I mean, that place is hit town. Let's just be real. And Andrew says, okay, we'll come and see Back in, in, in verse 46, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to them, How do you know me? And Jesus said, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. In other words, in that moment, I believe Nathaniel's professing Jesus as Lord. He's, he's admitting this guy's the Messiah. He obviously has nothing figured out at that point. This is the moment of conversion. And Jesus can look out into the future and see something in Nathaniel that Nathaniel can't even see in himself, namely his redemptive potential. Because Jesus has now saved him and rescued him and has brought him into relational proximity with him, and because Nathaniel can now observe what it looks like to live under the authority of Jesus, the sky is the limit for Nathaniel. That God is in the business of redeeming, and so the potential always exists for God to change, for God to move, for God to do something in his life. Discipleship is marked by the certainty of Jesus, that if we become a disciple of his, he will change us. That's why I like the way that this whole thing ends. At the back half of verse 51, Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you. And that's an Aramaic word for, for, for truly there. If you're reading the, the old King James says, verily, verily, I say unto you, as if Jesus was William Shakespeare. But truly, truly, it's, it's, an Aramaic, it's the Aramaic word, amen. So amen, I'm amen, I say to you. Now, it's, what's interesting about that is in Jesus' culture in that day, the amen was not given by the teacher. The amen was given by the people. So that if the teacher said something that was true, the people would amen it, saying and confirming that that was true. But Jesus starts with not one amen, but two. Amen, amen. In other words, I don't need the crowd to affirm me, and I don't need you to even believe this because it is true. Truly, truly, this is going to come to pass. You will see, the, the, you will see the, the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Heaven itself will be opened. In other words, 
I believe that Jesus is telling us in this and what it means for us to be a disciple is that we can't even conceive of what he could possibly do in our lives. We just have to trust that he wants to do some great things in our lives. That's the essence of what it means to follow him and trust him. That we're always coming back to this potential that is bound up within us because of faith and because of the Holy Spirit and because of the person of Jesus himself. Which means that the calling that we're given is a higher calling. We don't see the world through the eyes of mere humans. We see the eyes as a redeemed people who've been bought by King Jesus. And we follow him into a higher calling. That means to, in order to find our lives, we have to lose them. It's the essence of discipleship. We get swept up into an existence with Jesus that has meaning and purpose and latent possibility. It's what William Willimon said. One of my, the thing he said that he most, uh, dis, the thing about God he said that most annoys me is that I'm not able to give up on anyone, and that includes me, because God can always change things. We are swept up into a higher calling filled with latent possibility of what God can be up to in our lives. I'll finish with this this morning. When we talk about discipleship, we're talking about this higher calling. We're talking about losing our lives to find it. We're talking about what it means to, to be in proximity to Jesus with one another. Tim Keller once preached on this passage, and he said it like this. He said, the word disciple is the same as the word discipline. And discipline means to subjugate our present desires for the sake of future higher, nobler goals, goods, and causes. A Christian disciple is somebody who has said, all other pursuits are secondary. To serve and to learn of and to know Jesus Christ, my master, is primary. Jesus puts it in a very, very blunt way. Jesus said, he who seeks to find himself will lose himself, and he who loses himself for my sake will find himself. What he means is anybody who struggles with the question, who am I, and puts that as their highest priority will never find out who they are. If you think that it's more important for you to find out who you are and fulfill your desires than to obey a higher cause, then you will never find out who you are, and you will never have your desires fulfilled. That's the catch-22. So God, this morning, would we see that you have summoned us into this relationship and all other pursuits are secondary, that the orientation of our lives and of our hearts is to follow Jesus into the world, to see him, to be found in him, to learn from him, and ultimately to be shaped by him into the very image and likeness that, that, that you model for us in his life. So Jesus, we want to be a church that reveals that to the world. We need your spirit. We're utterly helpless on our own. We're dependent upon you to, to accomplish this in us. So would you do it even now? By your spirit, through your word. In your name we pray. Amen.